Join me at Obadiah in verses 19 and following. Conclusion of this dramatic, visionary, prophetic oracle. Now we're going to take verses 19 and 20 together because these two verses must be taken together for a number of reasons. And I'm going to begin with the bracketing or envelope feature which ties the two verses together. And let's see if you can pick out those bracketing features as you examine those two verses in your English Bible. Very good. So Kay has pointed out the double use of Negev, which is a bracket in verse 19 and 20. It occurs in both verses. There is another bracket. The word possess. Very good. So, the the Negev is the region of southern Judah. We'll look at it on the map in a little bit. But it is that region into which the Edomites had encroached. And so it has a kind of feature which is... uh, particularly appropriate to the theme of this book, namely the Edomite destiny. So those two verses <clears throat> belong together because of the, uh, the transcending, or shall we say, the culminating climax of this book. But <clears throat> they also belong together because of the geographical regions cited in each of the verses. <clears throat> These two verses explode with geographical geography, to use a redundancy. And so they form a unique portion of Obadiah's unique vision. There's nothing else in the book like it. And so it hangs together at the end of the book for a particular reason, which we'll elaborate on. But you will notice that the names jump out at you. There are a profusion of geographical names. Our tapestry, and we're continuing to paint the panels or see the panels of the aras or tapestry tableau that the visionary prophet has portrayed and created for our imagination to picture. Our tapestry portrays the Shephelah, Philistia, Samaria, Gilead, Zarephath, and the mysterious Sepharad among others. All right, now why does the prophet compact so much territory into so little space? What's the point of naming all of these geographical regions? All right, let's begin to answer that question with the sequence that ties together verses 19 and 20 to verse 18. And on your outline, you have blank spaces there, opposite 18, 19, and 20. And so there's a pattern there. We've talked about it before. But can you, once again, take a look at the connection between 19 and 20 and 18? What is it that ties that unit together?
parallel line of 18 and a parallel line underneath that parallel line in 19 means that there's a duplication there. Yes, thank you, Marge. <clears throat> Esau appears in 18. It also appears in 19. And 19 then adds a word which appears in verse 20. We've already actually identified that word in the bracketing feature. Art? The word possess. And so that pattern from 18 to 20 has a label. What do we call that kind of a patterning? Yes, it's the concatenation pattern, and this is where it ends. <clears throat> the concatenation, which has begun <clears throat> in verse uh, 7, ends here in verse 20, and <clears throat> leaves verse 21 uniquely set aside. All right, so the concatenation hooks verse 19 to the previous verse, it is the geographical territory of Esau, the geographical region of Edom. That mountainous region, notice the phrase, mountains of Esau, in verse 19, is to be possessed by the Jews, the house of Jacob Joseph. And not only is the house of Jacob Joseph to reoccupy Mount Esau, they are to possess Gilead and Samaria and Zarephath, other locations. Now, the locations in these two verses are a veritable border of the land of Israel, a border of the land of Israel from her occupation under Joshua to her expansion under kings David and Solomon. In other words, Obadiah verses 19 and 20 are a prophetic projection of the restoration of Israel and Judah by way of eschatological imagery, a prophetic projection of the restoration of Israel-Judah by way of eschatological imagery. Obadiah, therefore, takes his place alongside the other Old Testament prophets who predict a future national restoration of the fractured Israel-Judah division, which terminated with the respective Assyrian and Babylonian conquests. All the prophets talk about a future restoration of Israel-Judah. They talk about it, they project it, they look up to it in hope. Obadiah foretells that future by a geographical expansion a geographical expansion which approximates the range of the kingdom of Israel predicted to Abraham, inaugurated in Joshua's conquest and settlement, governed in might and peace by David and Solomon. Obadiah harnesses past historical geographical imagery to project a future prophetic reality past geographical imagery to project a future prophetic reality. And what is that reality? It is the portrait of a restored people of God. It is the portrait 
of a restored people of God possessing their inheritance in union with their brothers and sisters as a remnant of God's grace in a land which occupants with occupants from the four corners of the compass, from the south, the Negev, from the west, Philistia, from the north, Zarephath, from the east, Gilead. The historical geographical imagery is used prophetically. It is used prophetically to describe a trans-historical reality, a region of God's redeemed people settled in their inheritance land, joined together as one body, one people of faith, with one blessed possession, the kingdom of heaven's God and his messianic only begotten son, the deliverer. That region is trans-historical, eternal, being filled up to the full with the elect according to the remnant of grace from the north and the south and the east and the west. They are populating the kingdom of God, the kingdom which is Yahweh to the Lord. So the geography here serves the eschatology. It projects a glory region beyond the earthly and this worldly, even as it uses the language of the temporal and the earthly. It is Obadiah's and the Old Testament prophet's way of painting the kingdom of God with the language and portraits familiar to them, that is, to the prophets themselves, even as those portraits are depicting a geography which is not fully familiar to them, using what they do know to project and prophesy what is beyond their knowledge, but is part of what God is going to bring to fulfillment. So, this is standard Old Testament restorationist prophetic imagery, but it does not point to a future historical restoration of Israel according to the flesh. This is not nationalistic future eschatology. It may seem that way. It may appear to be so. But the thing that belies that interpretation is that word in verse 21, the kingdom of Yahweh. That is not nationalistic. That is not a political entity. Therefore, this geographical imagery must be related to that prophetic eschatological imagery. It has something to do with the way the prophet sees that kingdom. It has something to do with the transcendent geography of that which belongs from the north, south, east, and west to that kingdom. This is eschatological prophecy which appropriates the language and imagery known to the Old Testament prophet so as to project a trans-historical reality faintly or dimly known to him. That trans-historical reality is the kingdom, the Yahweh. This is eternal and heavenly imagery under the language of the temporal and the earthly. It is a fundamental exegetical mistake 
to want to literalize the Old Testament prophets' talk about a future Israel and say it is a nationalistic political kingdom. It is a fundamental mistake to interpret the Old Testament that way. Jesus does not. Paul does not. The New Testament writers do not. Because you see, they understand the imagery of the prophet, the imagery which is borrowed from the from the imagery known to them in the concrete historical of their own, but that transcends that historical, transcends that, that practical or earthly imagery. What is coming is something that is exceedingly abundant and far above what can be thought or believed with respect to the kingdom which is the Lord's. All right, now, I'm taking pot shots here at a particular premillennial interpretation of the book of Obadiah as I'm taking pot shots at that particular exegetical approach to interpreting the Old Testament prophets in general. It is an error, in my opinion. It is a fundamental misreading of the prophets in the light of how the apostles and Christ himself read the apostles. How do we interpret the language of the apostles which looks literal and, and factual. We interpret it the way the New Testament writers interpret it. They interpret it spiritually and transcendentally. They don't interpret it nationalistically and politically. Now, though that is an error, I'm not suggesting that it is an error which results in a loss of salvation. So please do not accuse me of that. <clears throat> this is iron sharpening iron but I respect many of my premillennial brothers and sisters as very fine Christians and born again by the Spirit. Nonetheless, <clears throat> I don't think they're right in the way they approach the prophetic corpus in this particular aspect. And so I'm making my case based upon how Obadiah is using this language. Well, <clears throat> what about the geography? Or maybe you have some questions <clears throat> that you want to pose at this point. Okay, we settled the issue of premillennialism. We've taken care of that. All right. Now, let's take a look at the geography. And so you need to have your maps there. Uh, they are in order as we will look at them. The first sheet that has map number 7 and 150. Second sheet that has map number 124 and 280. These maps taken from the fifth edition of the Carta Bible Atlas, which is in many ways one of the finest Bible atlases in print. <coughs> Now, on map number seven, which is in your, which is on the first sheet there, you'll notice the Negev, which stands out there in the south, and then along the coast, you'll notice just to the right, the Shephelah. Now, the Shephelah is the region between the coastal plains, which border the Mediterranean Sea or the Great Sea and the hill country, or what the Old Testament Jews would call the mountains in the central part of Israel or Palestine. And then you descend into the Rift Valley on the other side of that hill country down towards the Dead Sea and the Jordan Rift where you see the Jordan River in that region. Now, on the Transjordanian side in that map, you can also see the territory of Gilead which is on the east side of the Jordan Rift. All right, so those are a couple of the names. Those are three names that are in this geography of 
Obadiah. And then in, on map number 150, you will see almost right in the middle, uh, just above the R in Israel, Samaria, which is also being uh, mentioned here. There is Gilead again on the Transjordanian side, but up at the top on the coast is Zarephath, which is also named by Obadiah in this geographical uh, panoply. Now, map number 124 shows the location of the Philistines on the lower left, and then just to the right of that, the tribe of Benjamin, which is also uh, mentioned. Above that, you'll notice Mount Ephraim, and actually that is the uh, tribal region of Ephraim. We'll make a larger comment about that in a moment. <clears throat> and on the Transjordanian side, once again, Gilead, which has borders from below, from the bottom there left, from Moab up to the top, which is near Damascus, which would be Syria, two rivers that form that border of Gilead. They're not on the map, although you see the line of the southern, of the northern border of Moab, southern border of Gilead. <clears throat> That's actually the Arnon River, <clears throat> but you don't see the northern border, which is the Yarmuk between Syria and Gilead. <clears throat> Finally, you have uh, the map number 280 there, which pictures the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. <clears throat> and that comes in for discussion when we <clears throat> want to talk about Sepharad. All right, now that's the general orientation of the maps. Uh, <clears throat> what's going on here? All of those places that are listed by Obadiah appear to be either within or closely contiguous to Israel or Palestine. They are in the neighborhood of the ancient Near East. In fact, they are in the neighborhood of the ancient Middle East. The Negev is the southern part of Judah, verse, uh, map number seven. The Shephelah is the lowland foothills between the flatlands of the coastal stretches of Philistia and the central highlands of the mountains of Judah. <clears throat> Ephraim is a tribe as well as a name. And you see that on map number 124. You see that name Ephraim uh, above the line of Judah. Why do I say Ephraim is a tribe as well as a name? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> Ephraim is one of the favorite names for the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, which divided or was split apart from the kingdom of Judah when Rehoboam foolishly decided to overtax his people and Jeroboam the first who had been uh, a refugee in uh, Egypt, uh, being kept by the Egyptians probably as a pawn for their political purposes. And Jeroboam took the ten tribes of the north and divided from the two tribes left in the south, Judah and Benjamin. And we had the divided kingdom about 940 B.C. when Jeroboam 
uh, <clears throat> revolted and withdrew from that uh, unit, <clears throat> uni- unified nation. The prophet Hosea in particular likes that name Ephraim for the northern kingdom of Israel, but there are other prophets that use it as well. So Ephraim here is simply another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, he mentions Samaria. What has Samaria got to do with this history? Samaria's significance? Art? Ben? Uh, not quite there, okay? Uh, it has something to do with the northern kingdom. <clears throat> it's not Jeroboam. It becomes the capital of the northern kingdom. <clears throat> yes, there is idolatry there. And he set up the idolatry at Bethel and Dan, at the northern and southern borders of the kingdom, in order to keep the people from going down to Jerusalem. Samaria became the capital <clears throat> of the northern kingdom uh, <clears throat> during the time of Omri, King Omri. And his dates are listed there on your handout in the 9th century B.C. <clears throat> now, to tiny Benjamin, on map number 124, it belongs to the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah and Benjamin remained <clears throat> together after the division of the kingdom. And Gilead <clears throat> is that region of the Transjordan, as I mentioned between the Yarmuk and the Arnon rivers, you can't see them on the maps. The Yarmuk is the northern border and the Arnon is the southern border. I did point out the Arnon is that line of the northern border of Moab that goes to the east. <clears throat> that is between the borders of Syria or Aram to the north and Moab to the south. So <clears throat> if you imagine Gilead between the nations... Gilead is between the nation of Syria to the north, or Aram Damascus on that map number 124, and Moab to the south, just a piece of which you see on the southern portion of that map number 124. All right, now back to map number 150 and the the position of Zarephath. Zarephath is outside of Israel. It is not within the uh, borders proper of Israel or Judah. But it is on the Levantine coast of the Phoenicians. Zarephath is a Phoenician city. It's between Tyre and Zidon. It may be mentioned here because of its significance in the Elijah narrative. Possibly. Not absolutely certain as to why Obadiah uses this name, why didn't he name Sidon or Tyre, which were much more famous Phoenician cities, but it's perhaps because of the memory of what the great prophet Elijah had done there. Nonetheless, it does attract attention to the Phoenician element, the Phoenician coast, and the Phoenicians in their importance, particularly as sailors for Solomon's empire. Jerusalem is on this list, and you well know that capital of the nation of Israel and Judah. From the days of David to its destruction, who destroyed Jerusalem? 
Go ahead, Terry. Nebuchadnezzar, king of? Adam. In what year? 586. Very good. Very good. All right. Um, that leaves Sepharad. Oh, actually, we didn't give the date of the Syrian conquest of Samaria or the northern kingdom. What's the date of the destruction of the northern kingdom? 722, very good. So the Assyrians destroyed the north, Babylonians destroyed the south, Syrians destroyed the north in 722, and about 150 years later, the Babylonians destroyed the south in 586. Right now, that brings us to Sepharad. As one scholar terms it, both a hopox and a crooks. A hopox, because the name only occurs here in the whole Bible. And hopox is from a Greek word, hopox, which means once. The hopox, or the once appearance of Sephirot, is very, very mysterious exceedingly challenging, and that makes it a crooks. A crooks from the Latin phrase crooks interpretum, meaning a hard place to interpret. Crooks is a Latin word for cross, literally. But cross can often mean something which is hard to bear, and so the nuance, this is a hard place to interpret. Now, the difficulty of trying to figure out what Obadiah means by Sepharad and what the word even means, difficulty is compounded by the association of the word with Sephardic, Sephardic Jews. Now, you may never have heard of Sephardic Jews, but there are two great branches of Judaism in the East, Sephardic and Ashkenazi. The Sephardic Jews are distinguished from Ashkenazi Jews by way of geographical regions or location. The Ashkenazi settled north of the Black Sea, southern Russia, Poland, Germany, and Eastern Europe. Those are the Ashkenazi Jews. The Sephardic Jews settled on the Iberian Peninsula. What's the Iberian Peninsula? Do you know what the Iberian Peninsula is? Ben? Pardon? Spain and Portugal, and you missed one. Part? Spain, Portugal, and? France. Not France. It's not on the peninsula. There is another tiny little nation in there. The running of the bulls. Pardon? No, it's not Andorra. It's the region of the Basques. That's the reason I gave Art a shot at that. It, it, it's all right. It's only a one point. It only counts one point. It's like a foul shot. 
Uh, the Basque region in northwestern Spain is still independent. And when the bulls run in Pamplona every year, that's where they run. They're running in, a, in the Basque region. That city is in that Basque region. Well, at any rate, the Sephardic Jews settled in the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, Portugal, and the regions of the Basques. In fact, the Hebrew word Sephardod means Spain even today. So you know a Yiddish Hebrew word, Sephardod. You can, you can throw that around a little bit with your Jewish friend. Anyway, it's, it's lasted so long in the vocabulary that it's still their label for the nation of Spain. Now, the crooks, or the problem is clear. At least I think so. You see it. There's a list of locations in Obadiah 19 and 20 which clearly seem either within or closely contiguous to ancient Israel in Palestine, also contain a name from faraway Spain. Spain is not contiguous or within Israel-Palestine. Are the restored Jewish exiles to possess as an inheritance places associated with the ancient Middle East, but with one exception, Sephirod, which is no part of the ancient Middle East. I think you feel the problem, and certainly all the commentators and scholars have felt the problem. Now, the most recent solution proposed to this problem is the 2014 article, which appeared in the Journal of Semitic Studies by Mariona Pons, entitled The Origin of the Name Sepharad, A New Interpretation. And she argues that the Hebrew letters here in the Hebrew text of Obadiah, S-P-R-D, as we would transliterate them, those Hebrew letters are a reference to the Persian name Sparta. And there you see S-P-R-D again in the Persian name Sparta. And Sparta is the Persian name for the city of Sardis. And that's the reason we have that map 280 in the seven churches of Asia Minor, because Sardis is one of the seven churches of Asia Minor. But Sardis isn't contiguous or within the borders of Palestine or the region of the ancient Middle East, is it? It's pretty far away. Denison's conclusion. In my opinion, the crooks remains. In my opinion, the crooks remains. And Sepharad in Obadiah 20 is yet unidentified. Nobody has been able to identify it yet. I definitely do not believe it is Spain. I'm very persuaded myself that it does not mean Sardis. So neither Spain nor Sardis satisfy, nor any other place that has been projected, because there's no known place as yet which satisfies the criteria of the internal evidence of verses 19 and 20 of the book of Obadiah. And so... 
We leave it unidentified, as yet unknown. But you realize what they uncovered just this week, or at least reported that they uncovered just this week. You're all familiar with the Great Pyramid of Giza. It's pictured in all the, you know, the portraits or the pictures of Egypt. That great, huge pyramid that was built by the Emperor Khufu about 2600 B.C. 2600 B.C., 400 years before the patriarchs. They uncovered a port on the east coast of Africa, on the coast of the Red Sea, opposite the Arabian Peninsula. They uncovered a port which has limestone anchors and port entries and papyrus rolls. 2600 B.C. papyrus rolls. And what do they discern? from all of this evidence of this shipping trade that was coming into that port. That port was taking advantage of the copper trade in the ancient world. Oh, copper trade of all things. Perhaps they were trading with the Edomites. But they were also trading from southern Arabian Peninsula, Yemen, where also there is copper ore, and perhaps even East Africa. But they are also bringing in other things, according to these papyrus records. They were bringing in materials that were going to be transported all the way up to that region of Giza where that pyramid was built. In other words, Khufu, this emperor, had a navy operating on the Red Sea, transporting all kinds of goodies to help build that pyramid that was going to be his sarcophagus. 2600 B.C., and there it is, lying there with, with, we don't know yet what's going to be found on those papyri rolls. They haven't translated them all yet. I doubt that they'll find Sephirod, but nonetheless. My point here is that when we run up against crookses in the Bible, we shouldn't despair because time is on our side in a sense. Namely, that the archaeologists who are digging are uncovering remarkable finds about biblical and non-biblical materials, which is filling in the gaps in our historical knowledge, both theological and secular. And this story about this, this Navy port on the Red Sea is one that simply broke on the archaeological websites this week. You ought to look at the pictures. It's spectacular. I've told you about the Associates for Biblical Research website, and they're the ones that have got the story and also the, the color photos of the it's, um, that stuff is amazing. <clears throat> you know, if, if, if evolution is true, the Egyptians should have been, uh, you know, just emerging from their Neanderthal phase, you know, about 2600 B.C. And here they are. They've got a sophisticated navy operating. <laughs> evolution is such a, a, a nutcase. But <clears throat> anyway, um, so much for Sephirod and uh, the, uh, the hope that in the future something more credible and uh, persuadable, persuasive will be discovered that will fit this name to what's going on in the broader geographical regions, the point 
that Obadiah is making more comprehensively. At least that's my take. That's the reason I don't accept any of the proposals. And in fact, there are several other commentators who aren't persuaded by any of the other proposals either. So I stand in somewhat good company. All right, now I have suggested that this restoration imagery in these two verses includes both Israel and Judah, a reunited people of God in eschatological project prospect. Now, in support of that suggestion, I point you to verse 20. Notice verse 20, where the exiles are listed twice. Who would these exiles be? They would be the exiles from Israel, the deportation of 722 B.C. They'd be exiles from Jerusalem, the deportation of 586 B.C. The designation of exiles indicates a remnant out of the captivity of the northern kingdom and exiles of Jerusalem, a remnant out of the captivity of the southern kingdom, the duplicate and inclusive pattern here reemphasizes the repossession of all former Israel in the latter eschatological Israel. This is the imagery, the language for the reunited people of God in the eschatological kingdom of Yahweh. That's another element of the restoration theology of the prophets that the divided kingdom will be reunited in the eschatological future. The remnant of Israel, the remnant of Judah, will be restored in union. <clears throat> this is eschatological imagery. Once again, it is not nationalistic political imagery. It is the imagery which gathers that remnant from <clears throat> elect Israel of the north and the south elect according to grace from the north and the south, and elect people, an eschatological Israel, a new Israel, a heavenly and eternal united Israel of God. And there is one person who himself embodies that unity, and he himself is the eschatological Israelite, and that, of course, is the Son of God in his incarnation Uniting two natures, uniting two bodies, uniting two elements in the Old Testament history of redemption, <clears throat> uniting Jew and Gentile into one family, one kingdom, one heavenly inheritance. All right. Any questions on verses 19 and 20? Or any questions about any of the... Uh, <clears throat> blanks on the outline, any things that you need to have filled in that you didn't get. All right, uh, we'll take a break and we'll come back and look at verse 21. The climactic verse 21 is unique to the prophecy, though it brings in a vocabulary which aligns it with verse 1 as I will attempt to show in detail when we consider my article later on. Thus, <clears throat> verse 21 completes the envelope or circle of the visionary prophecy 
verses 1 to 21, a unit of prophetic integrity or prophetic completeness or prophetic wholeness. Verse 21 also contains the only, the unique, the singular mention of the kingdom as the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of eternity, the everlasting kingdom, and etc. But verse 21 is also continuous with the previous prophetic material, even though it contains no mo crochet, no concatenations, if not connected to the immediate context by vocabulary, how then is it part of the panoramic tapestry of Obadiah's vision? You will notice how carefully the prophet reveals the antithesis. The antithesis in verse 21. The antithesis between deliverance through deliverers and judgment through the judge. And that antithesis is between protagonist and antagonist of the prophecy. The chief characters in the prophet's tapestry. The tableau of opposition between Jacob Judah and Esau Edom. This antagonism, this opposition, has erupted before the very eyes of the prophet Obadiah in 586 B.C., but it has its antecedents. It has its antecedents in the past history of the two nations, the past history of the two patriarchs, the past history of the two seeds, the past history of the two decrees. This opposition is embedded in the absolute sovereignty of God. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And so that decree unfolds itself in history, in the character of the two twin brothers in time and space, through character inborn in both, reborn in one, unreborn in the other. This sovereign seed promise or promised seed declaration is mirrored in the sovereign seed declaration with respect to sinful mankind. Seed of the woman over against seed of the serpent. The elect seed according to sovereign grace, the reprobate seed according to sovereign justice. In the seed of the woman, none deserves the sovereign choice. The election is the divine initiative alone, uninfluenced by human character, human acts, human works, human merits, human anything. In the seed of the serpent, each one deserves the sovereign choice, reprobate according to the divine preterition alone. On account of human sinful character, human sinful acts, human sinful works, human sinful demerits, human sinful everything. The antithesis of Obadiah 21 emerges from the region of eternity, from the absolute decree of God, from the divine determination established from all eternity to destroy Mount Esau and to exalt Mount Zion. We have depicted the sovereign decree as it unfolds in redemptive history 
on our visual or visionary arras or tapestry, our tableau of the pictorial panels of the drama of this least of the prophets, displaying the history of the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah, the antipathy between the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah, the antithetical character of the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah, the object of divine and supernatural grace in the one twin son, but not in the other twin son. The separation of the one twin son from the other, thus establishing two separate nations destined to replay the twin hostility of their parent patriarch, a hostility arising from a nation of abounding grace regenerated, believing Jacob and his sons vis-a-vis a nation of no great grace regeneration, pagan Esau and his sons. Years, ages, several millennia of unfolding and sporadically invasive wars of hostility between Jacob's seed and Esau's seed, whether defensively expansive or tyrannically aggressive, this internecine conflict prophesied by the Lord at the coming of age of the two ancestral twins in Genesis 27:40 reaches its anticlimax in 586 BC. There, the judgment of God, the sovereign Lord, falls on both twin-descended nations. Ironically, but righteously, on the wicked and rebellious nation of Jacob, Judah, Jerusalem, deservedly and also righteously on the wicked and pagan nation of Esau, Edom, Teman. Death and destruction to Jacob, Judah, but with a promise of electing grace in deliverance, restoration, repossession of God himself, repossession of God himself and his reality for the one seed of Jacob, seed of Abraham, seed of the woman, Seed of God, the eternally begotten Son of God. Any concomitant promise of condemning wrath and destruction, obliteration, annihilation, and permanent rejection by God himself, and the reality of eternal wrath for the other. Seed of Edom, seed of Ishmael, seed of the serpent, seed of Satan, the created angel of God, who battled for the position and privilege of the eternally begotten Son only to taste the pangs of hell in the place prepared for him and the unregenerate Edomites. These are the stark antitheses unfolded by the prophet Obadiah as he unfolds the redemptive history of the eternal decree. He is unfolding the redemptive history of that eternal decree in his tiny book, an historical tapestry of the Esau whom God hated and the Jacob whom God loved. That is the reason this book is in the Bible. It is a redemptive historical biblical theological portrait of the history of those two nations. And we who believe in the God of Obadiah, we believe also in the eschatological seed of Jacob the elect, beloved son of the Father, who has loved us, his sons and daughters, with an everlasting love. Elect seed of the fathers in the one chosen and elect from before the foundation of the world, but revealed and displayed in the history of redemption 
as it unfolds from patriarchs to prophets with the message of the kingdom which belongs, look Yahweh, to the Lord. This Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, his heavenly and eternal kingdom in which all the elect seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel, are one nation, one family, one redeemed and chosen people, blessed with the inheritance of the Israel of God in the true and final Israel of God, great Jacob, Judah's greater son, the eternal son of the eternal kingdom, Jesus Christ our Lord, that is the kingdom to which Obadiah's last verse directs you and me and all who read with eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds to understand, as well as hearts to love the book of Obadiah. Any questions? All right, now, I have shared with you what was published actually yesterday on the seminary website, my article on the aperture and closure of Obadiah. And so you have a copy of it before you, and I'm actually going to read it and allow you to stop me and ask me questions if you have any. But I'd like to read it to you because what I'm doing in this article is building upon something I mentioned at the beginning of this series, namely that verses 1 and 21 are connected. I mentioned the obvious connections at the beginning, but in this article I want to make out a detailed uh, exposition of the multiplicity of connections that relate to the beginning and ending of this book. The title is referring to the beginning and ending of the book of Obadiah. And you notice the text is Obadiah 1 and 21, which is the first and last verses of the book. <clears throat> the subtitle, Patterned Symmetry, is pointing to the fact that there is a symmetrical patterns in those two verses. <laughs> Patterned symmetry of visionary imagery. We've talked about the imagery of the book of Obadiah, <clears throat> and this is a visionary image because that's exactly what he says. The prophecy of Obadiah is a vision. The Hebrew word is hatzon. It occurs in the first verse of the book. All right, as such, it contains visual images, pictures. We've tried to paint those pictures as we've gone verse by verse through the book. <clears throat> but the first verse and the last verse also contain these pictures, pictures of God's sovereign acts, sovereignty of God against Edom, or Mount Esau, as it's described in the book, <clears throat> sovereign acts against Judah and for, against Edom, rather, and for Judah, Mount Zion, as that terminology appears in the book. The tapestry unfolds in 21 verses, 291 words. Yet verses and words flourishing with rhetorical imagery and literary artistry. This prophet is a poetic genius. Artistry imprinted with frequent vivid symmetry, that is parallelism, whether symmetry of alliteration, that is words that begin the same way, assonance, words that sound the same way, paranomasia, words that sound like what they represent, <clears throat> anaphora, that is headers or uh, or, or uh, words which signal something to follow, or even chiasm 
as you know that what that word means, you've been with me long enough to understand the definition of chiasm. There is in Obadiah's visual portrait vibrant imagery of judgment for Edom Esau, conjoined, that is joined together, with efficacious, that is, that which produces its effect, efficacious visions of gracious deliverance for Israel Jacob, the antithesis, which we've just referred to as we discussed that final verse. In fact, this patterned symmetry is present at the opening and closing of the inspired prophet's little book. There's a symmetrical antithesis is present at the beginning and end. Obadiah has crafted a paradigm of reciprocal symmetry into the beginning and ending of his visionary revelation, which is stunning, if not brilliant, in its rhetorical, literary, and theological magnificence. Not only the march of God's wrath against vicious Edom in an eschatological finality culminating in the end of Esau's mountain kingdom civilization, in other words, there's the judgment unto destruction, but the parade of God's saviors, deliverers, the Hebrew word is Moshiim, Moshiim. It even sounds like Messiahs. Okay. <clears throat> the parade of God's saviors in an eschatological finality culminating in the kingdom of the Lord on his mountain glory Zion. Obadiah 1 and 21 are interrelated, not only by position, aperture and closure, beginning and end of the prophet's small book, the least of all the prophets. He is the smallest of the small prophets, the minor prophets. Obadiah 1 and 21 are interrelated with visionary substance, the substance of the book as a whole in nuce. Now, that Latin phrase, in nuce, that should be a favorite to you because it means in a nutshell. That's exactly what it means. Now you know a little useful Latin phrase. Instead of saying in a nutshell, you can say in nuce. Okay. All right. So these two verses are actually summarizing the book as a whole in a nutshell. And this is accomplished by the prophet's rhetorical, literary, theological, and eschatological skill so as to envelop his entire vision from beginning to end in a symmetry of reciprocity via recursive parallel portraiture. In other words, he's using language, he's using images, he's using uh, grammatical patterns that are reciprocal, recursive, parallel, in order to underscore the portrait that he is painting on his tableau. All this he accomplishes through geographical setting, prophetic subject, prophetic agent, directional vectors, duplicate grammatical markers, and echoing assonantial endings. All right, now there's the, there's the, the great uh, abundance of duplication or parallel symmetry in these first, in the first and last verse. In other words, there's much more than what I alluded to in the opening uh, uh, <coughs> a series of this study, and I'm going to detail that now <coughs> by way of breaking down those categories. Question? Yes. Yes. Or are you kind of summarizing the whole book in between? Well, the whole book will fold into it, but I'm concentrating on the the words, the language, okay? 
and the images that that language projects out of verses 1 and 21. Because I'm attempting to say there's a very tight bind between verse 1 and 21. It's the bindery that holistically summarizes this whole book, that binds it together. And it does so marvelously and beautifully. All right, let us unfold his remarkable theological tapestry at its aperture and closure. We are first arrested by the subject of the prophecy at the very inception. Inception means the very beginning. The prophet is writing what he sees about, to, concerning, belonging to. There's the Hebrew preposition la and Edom, about Edom, belonging to Edom, concerning Edom, la Edom. At the conclusion of his prophecy, he duplicates the same subject, with a symmetrical geographical locator, mountain of Esau. <clears throat> There's the Hebrew Har Esau. He thus features the name of Edom's progenitor, historical beginnings parallel to historical ending, endings, in an absolute historical birth of Esau Edom, reciprocally joined or related to an absolute historical death of Esau Edom. <clears throat> Verse 18 proves that. In other words, he brings Edom onto the scene in verse 1 as if Edom is, <coughs> is born into the drama. And then at the end, he brings about the death of Esau, Edom, the, the absolute ending. So the symmetry of the nation, <coughs> geographically and nominally, that is the nouns that refer to the, to the nation, <coughs> the symmetry of nation emphatically underscores the beginning and end of that nation even as the prophetic reflection on that nation begins and ends this tiny corpus of the Old Testament canon. <clears throat> he uses the name of Edom and the synonym for the name of Edom Esau at the beginning and end because at the beginning and end of his remarks, he is trying to reemphasize the beginning and end of Edom in its history. See, that's the reason he does it, the reason he repeats or parallels the, the name and its, and its synonym. The reader will also observe that the Hebrew preposition, that is the la, returns in verse 21 as focused on what belongs to or what concerns Edom Esau, Lee in this case, Lee Nishpat, Lishpat rather, which means that Edom is to be judged. What belongs to Edom in the beginning and what belongs to Edom at the end is the very same reciprocal element, namely the end of Edom at the beginning and the end of Edom at the end. Now, who is the agent of this prophetic drama? Next, we observe the symmetry of the agent directing this vision. Indeed, weaving the Aras tapestry with his own omnipotent sovereignty from outside history into history. Outside history into history. The Lord is identified initially as Adonai Yahweh in verse 1. Lord God in your translation. As well as Yahweh once again in verse 1. So the name Yahweh is repeated in verse 1 twice. And the name Yahweh is repeated finally in verse 21. With a duplicate preposition. The preposition law which means to, about, belonging to the Lord. 
So we observe the law preposition with respect to the prophetic agent, which is verse 1, Adonai Yahweh administers the battle belonging to Edom, while in while we also observe the law preposition with respect to the prophetic agent in verse 21. What belongs to Edom in verse 1 is coming judgment. What belongs to the Lord in verse 21 is coming deliverance or salvation. Though the duplication of the divine agent reinforces his activity in the judgment of Edom and salvation of Zion, what belongs to Edom and the Lord here is the antithesis of doom and redemption, coming to the one at the very outset of the vision and transcendently transcendently projected to the kingdom belonging to the Lord at the close of the vision. The antithesis between judgment unto condemnation and deliverance unto redemption and salvation. Perfect balanced symmetry. It's an antithetical symmetry, but it's perfectly balanced. No, NB, note well the double use of the Lamed preposition in both verse 1 and verse 21 further demonstrates the intentional bracketing of the aperture and closure. In other words, because he uses that preposition at the opening and the close, he is intentionally putting those two verses together. Vectors, which means directional errors, arrows. There are directional vectors in verse 1 and verse 21. These vectors are indicated by the all form in Hebrew. In verse 1, it is the preposition up against her. See, up against is a vector. It's a directional indicator. It comes in the Hebrew word aleha. The Lord is bringing forces up against Edom. Once again for Edom, the direction is the horizontal historical vector, which will bring her up against her terminal end. He's going to bring her history to an end. He's going to bring her up against her literal end. But in verse 21, it is the verb form alu, which means you see the same al form or ayin lamed there, which begins all of those words. I know you don't know the names of the, of the characters, but you, you see the similarity pronounced the same way as, as the English al. Alu, which means to ascend or to go up. That's a directional vector. It's a vertical directional vector. Here the direction is vertical, bringing the ascendance into a non-terminal end or destiny. That is, the transcendent arena of the transcendent agent, that's God of course, the transcendent arena is heaven, the transcendent agent is God, who sovereignly interweaves these events on his redemptive historical tableau. Mount Zion here is an eschatological dimension more blessed than the mere vertical horizon of ascent to the Zion below or the Jerusalem below, and in the Greek literally the now Jerusalem as Galatians 4.25 expresses it. This Zion which Obadiah is projecting is more glorious than the now Jerusalem below. And this is clear because the prophet visualizes the Zion mount to be the Lord's kingdom. Certainly an eternal eschatological vector. That's, once again, something I've kept banging away at throughout this series. That word kingdom, Yahweh, at the end of verse 21, is not a nationalistic, horizontal, earthly kingdom. It is not. It is eternal. 
heavenly. It is the very reality of what Jesus proclaimed when he was on this earth and saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is not a political earthly reality. It's an eschatological vector. All right, next, the assonance. There are finally two symmetrical assonential elements in these enveloping verses. The first is the duplicate im endings, and the second is the duplicate ah endings. This repetition of sound, he repeats sounds, and he does it on purpose. The repetition of sound in verse 1 and verse 21 underscores once more the intentional symmetry woven into the aperture and closure of this remarkable prophetic visionary work. The nation, goyim, there's the im at the end, the im, the goyim are summoned in verse 1 by the envoy of the Lord God, who is the prophet himself, replicating the mouth or word of God. The envoy of the Lord of God to rise against Edom. The nations are to rise against Edom. These nations are the instruments of God's impending judgment, a motif or theme explicitly duplicated in verse 21. The im terminal sound in verse 1 allows the reader or hearer to hear the coming clash of destruction delivered by the nations, that clash of the im. But verse 21 also contains the very same im terminal sound, Here, wonderfully, it is found in the word for deliverers or saviors or liberators. The Moshi'im, there's that im ending again. This word is related to the Hebrew word for Messiah and the verb to save. How pregnant is this word at the conclusion of this remarkable vision we observe on the tapestry of redemptive history, the saviors, deliverers of the people of God, those of time past, for instance, Moses, Joshua, David, and the one of time future, Moshe'im, Messiah Jesus, once and for all deliverer of the people of God. This panoply of saviors fills the vision field of Obadiah's last word, his final word to his audience. It is a portrait of the Lord's Messiah ascending to his everlasting kingdom on Zion's eternal mount, the Jerusalem above, not the Jerusalem below. The Jerusalem above, where the Messianic King, whom we know to be the very Son of God, sits at the right hand of the Majesty on high, ruling over the hearts of his sons and daughters with saving grace, full and free, to weary and heavy-laden souls. That's what Obadiah is projecting. That eschatological kingdom is the summum bonum. It is the highest good of this last verse of Obadiah. He has saved the best until last, and the final assonantial element in our tapestry of beginning and beginnings and endings. In verse 1, the battle which erupts against Edom is, in Hebrew, milhamah. Notice that terminal, ah, ending. Now in verse 21, the kingdom which appears on heavenly Mount Zion is, in Hebrew, melukah. Once again, notice that terminal, ah, ending. The symmetry of these ah, ending words in verse 1 and verse 21 is further accentuated by the fact that the word for battle and the word for kingdom are the very last words in each verse. At the very end of the verse, you've got that awe sound. This isn't accidental. This is absolute genius. As if in staccato form, a final tapestry aras image, the prophetic 
prophet Obadiah leaves us at the end of verse 1 with a vision of cataclysmic judgment battle. But the end of verse 21, the end of his vision prophecy, he leaves us with a portrait of the kingdom of the Lord, the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ Messiah, the kingdom of heaven as everlasting as the Lord and his Christ in the Zion above. Prophet Obadiah has brilliantly woven together the aperture and closure of his remarkable prophetic vision with literary, rhetorical, and theological symmetries. Devices in the text dramatically portray the judgment of the nation of Edom and the salvation of the nation of the kingdom of Zion. These parallel duplications are not accidental. They have been carefully crafted by an inspired artist so to allow us to see his prophetic message in images of dramatic poignancy. For even Obadiah embeds the redemptive historical reversal in the protological beginning and the eschatological ending of his magnificent prophetic tapestry. An inclusio of the reversal of condemnation by salvation, which is the ever gracious, gracious message of the law, the gospel, and the prophets. Praise the Lord that we who are in Christ Jesus see all this in the tapestry of our Savior Messiah's life, death, resurrection, and ascension to the heavenly Jerusalem as Hebrews 12:22 projects. Any questions? Well, that's an attempt to uh, put in print something that uh, I have <coughs> noted in the opening and closing because I think that it's a key to what the book is doing dramatically and, and prophetically as well as eschatologically. It draws us into the imagery. The book belongs to you, you who belong to Christ. And I hope now it belongs to you in a more precious way than it ever did before. Okay? I just want to say this study has been just wonderful because there's things in there I never saw in the Bible. When I read the Bible, these things pop up. I think, oh, there it is. It's very Thank good. Thank you. Very good. It's been a wonderful experience for me as well. I never knew Obadiah was so rich. Well, uh, <clears throat> we'll close with prayer. Uh, we will come back on January 12th at the same time, Lord willing, and begin uh, the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Let's pray. The magnificence of your servants, Lord, awes us. We who are of so little faith and so small of mind. You expand our understandings and also the riches of your gracious love to us by this wonder of drama and picture and tableau drawing us out of that nature of condemnation drawing us into that marvelous new nature of salvation through the seed of Jacob, who is your dear son.
We thank you that we've been able to understand in measure why you have given us Obadiah's revelation. And we particularly bless you for allowing us to see that revelation prophecy in the light of the fulfillment that our Lord Jesus has brought to us. In this Advent and Incarnation season, as we receive him again as a child who will become a man on a cross, we thank you that the prophet Obadiah foresaw that day and he too directs us to the foot of that cross and beyond to that eschatological kingdom where our risen and glorified Savior sits with the sons and daughters of regenerate Jacob, elect according to the remnant of grace. We are not worthy to be named or numbered with them, but we delight that you have called us and have privileged us with such a gospel good tidings. So bless us at this season of the year, and as we close this time with the prophet Obadiah, we express our prayers for our sister in Christ, Cheryl Van Voorhees, and ask you, O Lord, to restore her to health for the sake and glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.